0: Romans chapter 13, and if you find it quickly, you may turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, these were the scriptures I used last week in the message, and I want to repeat them because this is a part two. This is a sequel, if you will. The, sur- the subject last week was the Christian's attitude toward authority and Today, the second part of it, the Christian's attitude toward authority. Romans chapter 13, and follow with me as we read from God's Word, please. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. Now, higher powers literally is translated authorities. Let every soul be subject to the authorities. It has in mind government. It has in mind government at every level. That would be the president, the Congress, the courts, the mayor, the police officer. Uh, as Mr. Yarborough over here is running for sheriff, it would be the sheriff. That we are constrained by the Word of God to be subject to the duly elected, duly appointed authorities. It goes further and says, there is no power but of God. And last week, do you remember, I used a verse from Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus said, all authority is given unto me. There is no real authority on this earth that doesn't have its source that is not given by God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we really need to learn that that all authority can be traced back to God's authority. And he then grants rulers, governmental authorities, he grants them the authority to govern, to rule in civil government here upon the earth. So there's no power but of God. Jesus is the source of all power. The powers that be, governmental authorities, are ordained of God. Whosoever, therefore, resisteth the authorities, resisteth the ordinances of God himself. To be a rebel against authority is to be a rebel against God. They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, the people who live according to the law, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Then do that which is good, and you will have praise of the same. For he, the authorities that be, is the minister of God to thee for good. And if you do that which is evil, then you should be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, or you must obey, not only for wrath because you fear a sentence or because of punishment, but also for conscience sake that we as Christians want to have a clear conscience before the Lord that we have obeyed every single part of His Word. Go with me down to verse 13. Let us walk honestly then, as in the day, not in rioting. Now, you know what's going on in America. And Christians can have no part of a riot, not ever, not under any circumstances. You know, I've, I've watched so much of the news on this. The one word that's missing is sin. Have you ever heard anybody say those folks are sinning, burning, looting, tearing down a town? No, no, no. It's always somebody else's fault. But the Bible says, as Christians, we're not a part of disorder. And it goes further and says, and drunkenness, and not in chambering and wantonness, that refers to immoral conduct, and not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself in, in the Lord Jesus, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Now, in your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, and it sounds very much the same. Verse 13, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto the governor, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So is the will of God. This is the will of God for us. That with Well-doing we may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Verse 17, honor all men. Treat everybody with honor. Love the brotherhood, the Christians. Fear God and honor the King. Thank you, and you may be seated. So, as I told you last week in the message, Christ claimed to be the source of all authority. And he demonstrated in his life that he had authority over demons, over diseases, over nature when he calmed the sea and walked upon the waves. He has all authority. He had authority over Satan when he met him. And in the temptation, Jesus Christ defeated the devil. He has all authority. And the Bible teaches us in these verses that he grants part of that authority to people who are ruling, who are governing, because government is one of three, one of the three uh, institutions that God himself instituted, the family, the church, and the government. And these three institutions are the really bedrock and foundation of a, of a civil society. And so Christ gives his authority to people to rule, even though they don't know it. I think one of the most interesting passages in Scriptures in John chapter 19, Jesus is standing there. His hands are shackled behind him. Blood is running down his face. He's been severely beaten. A crown of thorns is on his head. He is a mangled, beaten man physically. And he is speaking to Herod, or rather Pilate. Pilate is a Roman governor. He has all the power and trappings of the Roman government behind him. And Jesus Christ says to him, you would have no power at all except it were given to you from heaven. Boy, talk about courage. He looked up in the face of that Roman governor after he had been beaten and mangled, and he said, you wouldn't have any power at all if I hadn't given it to you, basically. So Jesus said he gives his power to people in civil government to govern. In Daniel chapter 4, and verse 25, there's another interesting verse. The most high rules in the kingdoms of men... Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, God rules in the kingdoms of men and he gives his power to whomever he chooses. God rules. Don't ever forget that, Christian. God is in charge of this universe and he's even in charge of the civil government. Now, when rulers abuse their authority, we call them tyrants. And they should be held accountable When they abuse their power, and so many of them do. I quoted to you a man named John of Salisbury. He lived in the 1100s about 900 years ago. And in 1159, John of Salisbury, who was a renowned political writer of that period, but an outstanding Christian as well, John wrote these words, He says, tyranny is the abuse of power that is granted to man by God. God gives these rulers, these authorities at every level. He gives them the authority to rule. But if they abuse that power, then they are tyrants. We've seen tyrants in our day, have we not? And the founding fathers, when they set up our country, they did something that was profoundly wise they put in what we call a separation of powers. Now, I'm giving you a little civics lesson, but you'll see where I'm going in a minute. It's important that you listen. So, they set up the separation of powers. And so, they set up the legislator, legislature or the, the Congress, the Senate, the people who are entrusted, their responsibility is to make the law. They set them up, but they separated out the president, the executive, the governor, or in the case of a city, the mayor, the executive authority. And the purpose of the executive is to see that the law that the legislature passed is, in fact, carried out. Then they set up the courts, and they separated these three branches. They were equal in power, supposedly. And the courts then would look at the laws the legislature passed, see if they are appropriate according to the Constitution. They would pass on whether the law was, in fact, legal, and then the president or the executive would see that it's being carried out. And so we call that the separation of powers. You know what? We talk about our founding fathers as being brilliant people. The truth is, they didn't come up with that idea. I'll show you where it came from. Go to Isaiah chapter 33 in your Bible, and they didn't trust human power. They didn't trust the rulers or the authorities with full power, so they separated the branches of government so that nobody would have all the power. You've heard the old thing that power corrupts and absolute power absolutely corrupts. You've heard that. Okay. The fathers said, we will separate the government into three distinct branches so that nobody will be able to be a tyrant. And so in Isaiah chapter 33, here's where they got it. The Lord is our judge. That's the judiciary. The Lord is our lawgiver. That's the legislature. And the Lord is our king, and that's the executive who carries out the law. And so, in this case, in Israel, the Lord was all three. But you didn't need to worry about his abuse of power, did you? But in our world, we have judges, we have lawgivers, legislators, and we have kings or presidents or governors or whatever the chief legislative. Our uh, chief executive officer is called. Now, I'm taking two weeks with this because I think this is the most timely message I can come up with with right now for you. You see, COVID, this pandemic that we're in the midst of, has created an opportunity for tyrants to rise to abuse the power that God granted them like nothing I've ever seen in my lifetime. And these people are absolutely tyrannical across our country. I'm I'm not speaking so much of South Carolina because we are very blessed, but I'm trying to prepare you for what's happening in the whole nation today. And these governors who have no power to create law and these public health officials, who are simply public health bureaucrats, they are absolutely beginning to control every part of people's lives in this country. And they have no authority to do it. Now, you heard about in California, the governor out there closed the churches. Churches can't meet. I We have sister churches in California that are meeting under a tent or, on a ball field or something, they are not allowed to worship inside the building, and so the people at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley decided we're going to have church. We, were, we complied with this thing for months. And last Sunday week ago, they moved into the church, and they said, they simply passed the news in their congregation, we're going we're to have church. And they opened the doors. And I saw the video. The people are packed. They're sitting there shoulder to shoulder. There ain't no social distancing in that that place. There weren't very many masks. Man, when they had a service that day, it was a service because they hadn't been able to get together in months. They defied the governor's order. Well, you knew there would be legal action. They knew that. In fact, the county threatened to cut off their water and their electricity. But they said, have at it, but we're going to worship God. That you don't have the right to constrain us permanently from worshiping God. Yesterday morning, they had a hearing in Los Angeles. And the judge there said, the state of California has overstepped its authority. You people can have church. The only thing I ask you to socially distance, and to wear a mask, but you can worship God whenever you want from now on. Now, that's true until September the 4th. Now, you see, of the thousands of churches in California, every one of them had been shut down or uh, made ineffective, perhaps, until somebody stood up and took the truth of these verses and said, we've had enough. And core uh, the, the, the COVID epidemic has given governors and courts and public health bureaucrats an opportunity to abuse their power like never before in my lifetime. They issue these guidelines, these emergency declarations, they, these policies. These, they even call them laws, and they're not a legislature. And nobody's challenging them. There was a church in Nevada. I mentioned it last week. Let me give you a little more of the detail Calvary Chapel of Dayton. Dayton is a little tiny town in Nevada, out from Las Vegas, a number of miles. The church is a small church, it, it meets in uh, a small facility, but they only have, on average, about 90 people in attendance at Calvary Chapel Dayton. And they said, we're being discriminated against in our practice of religion. The First Amendment is being violated by the governor, whose name is Sisolak. He has said that a church can only have 50 people in attendance, doesn't matter what size the building. If you were meeting in a 2,000-seat auditorium, you'd only have 50 people in the whole building. But the casinos, oh, the casinos can have 50% of capacity. And so, they filed a suit against Sisolak, the governor. It quickly went to the Supreme Court. And last week, the court heard it. And what do you think the court did? It ruled against the church. Now, the gambling casino can operate at 50% capacity with all the wickedness that's represented in a gambling casino, but the church the state said, is non-essential, non-essential. You don't have to meet. Well, Judge Samuel Alito voted in the minority. He lost the case, but he wrote a dissent. And i read it to you today. Here's what he said against the five other judges that voted to defend the casinos, basically. Alito said, quote, the Constitution guarantees the free exercise of religion. It says nothing about the freedom to play craps or blackjack. We have a duty to defend the Constitution of the United States. And even a public health emergency does not absolve us of that responsibility. For months now, state and local governments have responded to the pandemic by imposing unprecedented restrictions on personal liberty, including the free exercise religion. Although that initial response back when this thing started was understandable, Alito said, quote, government officials do not have free reign to disregard the Constitution for as long as this medical emergency exists. Amen for him. Now, in no way, I I spent a whole message on Sunday morning exhorting you, telling you what the Bible clearly says, that the Bible teaches that we are subject to the authorities that God has placed over us, that we are to be obedient to them, and and there's not a whole lot of exceptions for it. Christians ought to be the most law-abiding people in Florence County, absolutely without fail. It's a terrible testimony to the Lord if you get arrested. It hurts every one of us. If you break the law and you get arrested, it hurts every, every church in, the, in, in Florence County. We are under authority. And I will never teach you that rebellion is an appropriate response. I read to you from Revelation, or, uh, pardon me, Romans chapter 13, where it said, though, that we're not to engage in riots and in, in, in certain law-breaking material, uh, events. There's no way I'm going to teach you that rebellion is ever appropriate. I'm going to say to you parents something that you really need to put in there and and remember, and I'm saying this to you with 48 years of experience of being the chief officer of a Christian school. Here's the point I'd make to you, parent. The best thing you can do for your child is teach them to respect and submit to authority. There's not much room in our culture for a rebel. When people learn to respect and honor the authority that God has placed in their life, they've taken a big step toward having peace and blessing throughout their life. Our culture is so distorted, we think rebellion is normal. We think of a teenager, a kid, and, and and boy, they're so rebellious, surly expression on their face, angry at everybody, disrespectful toward everyone. And we say, Oh, they're just a kid, they'll get over it. They might and they might not. But I'm telling you, the Bible is very clear. Listen, listen, listen to me. Rebellion is as witchcraft. 1 Samuel. There's no place for rebellion. Teach your children to honor and respect authority. I think of that rebellious teenager, that's the unhappiest creature in Florence. I go down to the jail, and do you know what I find? The common attitude there is an attitude of rebellion against authority, and it didn't get you very far in life. On the other hand, the question now has to arise to us, is it ever right to resist authority? Answer, one sentence. It is right to disobey the authorities, when obeying them would require us to disobey God. I say it again. It is right in the sight of God to disobey rulers, when obeying them would require us to to disobey God or to to break His law. I'll give you some examples. In your Bible, Exodus chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to go too fast for that. Exodus chapter 1, you have the Hebrew midwives, women who delivered the babies for the Hebrews who were slaves down in Egypt. And in verse number 17, the midwives feared God and did not. They resisted the authority of the king. They did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they saved the men child alive. They had a very specific commandment by the king that you kill those Hebrew boy babies. While, while, the, while the women are on the, quote, birthing stools, while they're giving birth to that baby, you kill that baby immediately upon its birth because the Hebrews are growing so fast, they're going to overtake us in population, and before it's over, they're going to be ruling the country, so we we got to hold them down. So kill the boy babies. In other words, a little abortion a la Ralph Nordham style, the governor of Virginia, who said it's all right to kill the baby after it's born. And that's what the king of, of Egypt was telling them to do. And they said, we will not do, as the king said. That's resistance. Now, be careful with that. But you know what I admire about these women? Think with me a minute. The Ten Commandments had not been given yet. They didn't even know the Ten Commandments. They didn't know thou shalt not kill. How did they know that? It's a very important principle I want to teach today. And here's the principle, that God has written his law in the hearts of people. He has put it in our consciences. We know right and wrong about many, many things without ever having to read a Bible. You can go to any culture almost in the world, and they know it's wrong to steal. They may not have a Bible. They may not be Christians. They know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to take another man's wife. They know that it's wrong uh, uh, to kill. And that's because God put in the heart of man intuitively and instinctively this thing we call a conscience. And Even before the law was given, these women said it's wrong, it's sin, it's evil, and we will not do it. Then there's Jeremiah, and the king was taking a certain course of action, and old Jeremiah preached a sermon against the king. And when he did, the king had him arrested, and they put him in a pit, and he's sinking down in the mire, and he is... on bread and water only, and he is about to die. And some friends go to the king and put some pressure on the king, and the king allows him to leave. And They pull him up out with ropes under his arms, the Bible says. He's 30 or 40 feet down in this big pit. And yet, though God rescued him at the last He never cut his message one bit. He never compromised one word. He preached that message contrary to what that king wanted. He resisted the authority of the day. He paid a heavy price for it, but he was willing to do it. And then I think of Esther, the little Hebrew Jewish girl who was the queen of Persia. And the king was the most powerful man in the world, the great Medo-Persian empire. And he had married this girl. She's just very young. And there was a law they had in Persia. And the law was that nobody, even including the queen, could enter into the throne room without official permission. And if anybody came in and the king did not extend his scepter, they, were, they would immediately be taken away and killed. It was really security on steroids. (laughs) is what it was. And so, even the queen couldn't approach the king without the king extending his scepter. But one night, word came to Esther. There's a plot afoot in the world. All the Jewish people are going to be killed in the next few days. That man, Haman, A wicked high governmental official is behind it, and he is going to kill the Jews for sure. She heard about that plot, and she said, what am I to do? I don't have authority to walk into the throne room before the king, but he must find out immediately. And she went to her uncle, Mordecai, who had raised her, who was a godly man, and he said, you must Tell the king, oh, but if I open that door and walk into that throne room, they could could kill me. They could execute me. And Mordecai says, you must do it. You cannot stand by and let your people be killed. To not act right now is to be a coward, is to be complicit. You must tell the king. And what were her words as she opened the door? If I perish, I perish. I've got to carry out my convictions before God regardless of the cost to me. And then we go to Daniel chapter, I'll tell you, turn there with me if you will. Daniel chapter three. Daniel chapter three, because I want you to see it there's just power in looking at the Word itself. Daniel 3 and verse number 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Hebrew children, answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. We have given a lot of thought to what you're saying, king. Well, what are they talking about in verse 16? They're talking about the fact that the king who has brought them as captives to Babylon, has commanded that they build a great image, an idol, if you will, and that everybody in the kingdom of Babylon has to bow down and give obeisance, worship that image, that thing. And to a Jew, that was the worst sin of all. In the Old Testament, the worst sin... The worst of all sin is idolatry. It is praying to and worshiping an image, an idol, a graven image. The first two commandments deal with that. And so the king says, you must bow down or I've got a fiery furnace and you will be tossed. This is a loyalty test to see if you're going to be loyal to me in the kingdom or not. The people that are not loyal to me, they're expendable. We don't need them. And what did they say? Oh, King, we've been thinking about this. Oh, we must give you this answer, if it be so, that we have to do it. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, but if not. Take your pen and underline three words there, but if not, God doesn't guarantee us that he's going to deliver us from our problems. There was no guarantee they were going to be delivered from the burning, fiery furnace. As far as they know, when that door opens and you're pushed in there, you are dead. (laughs) You are fried, (laughs) literally. There was no guarantee that God would come through with a miracle and deliver them, but He did. But they said, but if He doesn't, we will still be loyal to Him. Turn over three chapters. Daniel chapter 6, and it's the familiar one, Daniel in the lion's den, and the government had said... You can't pray to anybody else but to the king for 30 more days. Whatever your religion, whatever your God, you have to put it aside. It's only for 30 days. It's temporary. But you can't do it. In Daniel in chapter 6, look at the wording of verse 10. When Daniel knew that the writing or the law had been signed, He went to his house, and this is the part I like. He didn't hide. He didn't pull the blinds. His windows being open. He basically said, as he threw open the windows, all right, everybody in Babylon, take a look. I'm getting ready to pray. And he kneeled down upon his knees three times a day and prayed, and he gave thanks before his God, note the last word, as he did aforetime. In other words, that was his habit. He prayed every day, and he said, "I'm not changing anything. I am going to pray to God, and you do whatever you want with it." And you know the story. They put him in the lion's den. I mean, these are people of courage, like it's it's hard for us to comprehend in a soft culture like we have today. But God delivered him. God shut the mouths of those lions. He doesn't always deliver people. You read Hebrews 11, some people were thrown to the lions, and they perished. But in this case, it was God's will for him to be delivered. There's a couple of principles there. I wish you might write them down. Principle number one is, in times of great stress, we define our convictions. In times of great stress, we discover and define our convictions. Let me tell you something, folks, and I've thought a lot about this before saying it, but we have lived a type of Christianity in America that is not normal The rest of the world haven't been able to do what we've done here. In most places, even in today's world, there's a price for being a Christian. In America, you can be a Christian, and there's been very, very little consequence to it. But that day is coming to an end, I tell you. That's solemn. You didn't want to hear that? That ain't feel-good preaching it's coming to an end. I've been saying this for 10 or 15 years. In eight states of the United States with a First Amendment hanging over the governor's door, he has said the church is non-essential. And the day just has to continue with all these young students who've been told to hate Christianity and hate God and atheism and all the stuff that's bubbling up, just a few more years, and they're going to have the majority. So, I don't know when this is going to happen, but I think it's the role of the man of God to stand here and tell you, we need to understand it's not going to, Unless there's a tremendous revival and change in this country, it's not going to be like it's always been. Our freedom, our freedom to worship God and to assemble is under attack like it's never been before in the history of this country, not my lifetime, in the whole history of the country. The second principle is Daniel refused to sacrifice his spiritual health to preserve his life. Daniel refused to sacrifice his spiritual health to preserve his physical life. Now, my last example is Acts chapter twenty-nine, or Acts chapter five, verse twenty-nine. And the apostles have been told not to witness, and they said, "We have to tell what we've seen and heard." And the authorities arrested them. They beat them. They put him in jail for the night and hauled him into court the next morning. And they said, you must not talk again and use this name of Jesus Christ. And you know what Peter said? This guy who had denied Jesus Christ three times, but now God has done a work in his life. And here's what he says. Sir, we ought to obey God rather than man as i studied that this week and i don't want to be sharp because i want to communicate my message and people reject it when you're sharp but if 95 percent of evangelical christians in america had heard them say you can't witness anymore they you know what they would say today well it doesn't matter i don't do it anyhow But to the apostles, witnessing and sharing the gospel was not discretionary. Witnessing and sharing the gospel was essential. It was a vital part of their faith life. That to be a good Christian means you witness. And we can't do anything other than tell what we've seen and heard, what we've experienced in our own life. Now keep in mind, in all these six examples I've given you, when we resist authority, we've got to be prepared to suffer the consequences. We may end up being in fiery furnaces and lions, dens, and we may not get the scepter extended to us and 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 you know there's no guarantee that everything's going to work out immediately long term there is but it doesn't mean that we can ever resist authority and not be punished for it. And here's my point. Hear me. The history of the Christian faith is a history of suffering, of persecution, of even martyrdom. In your Bible, Mark chapter 8, here's what Jesus said. Mark chapter 8. Familiar passage, but in the light of where we're living today. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, in other words, whoever will follow Christ, now, I'm talking to you. Are, do you want to follow Christ? He said, if you want to follow, if you want to come after me, step one is you have to deny yourself. When have you heard in America a sermon on self-denial? America is all about pleasing yourself. America is all about doing whatever you want to do, what feels good. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Last of all, an old leather lung Baptist preacher. Challenge authority, that's the bumper sticker. When did you ever hear anybody say, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Don't do the things you necessarily want to do. Let me ask you a question, church, and all the people on TV and wherever you're watching. Let me ask you a good question. What have you denied yourself for, for the cause of Christ? What have you ever denied yourself for? And then he says, take up your cross. Circle two words there is take up. A cross is not imposed upon you. It's something you do voluntarily. You pick up the cross. It's intentional. Somebody said, oh, boy, I've got this cross to bear. My husband is sick or... I've got cancer, that's my cross. No, that's not a cross. You didn't take that up voluntarily. Denying yourself and taking up the cross is not giving up lemon pie for the next 30 days. It is taking up something that is painful. It is another way of saying denying self, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm preaching to you today a message that America needs to hear more than any other message as far as I'm concerned in the church and the least likely to appreciate it. The lukewarm, half-hearted, uncommitted, nominal Christianity that's characterized evangelical Christianity in America that's been the norm, it's not going to sustain you with what we're going to face in the future. I call it Porgy and best Christianity. Summertime and the living is easy. An Afghan Christian brother was beaten by the Muslims into unconsciousness, scars all over his body. And he said to his church in Virginia these words, I pray every day for the American Christians because they don't know how to face opposition, trouble. The governor says in eight states, the church is not essential I ask you a question, is salvation essential? Is preaching the gospel essential? A lot of churches don't think so. The largest church in Georgia just announced last week, we're closing the church completely until the first of the year. The reason the pastor gave is we can't guarantee your safety. Well, nobody else can. If that's true, then Walmart ought to close, but they're not going to close. And this week, the largest church in the state of North Carolina, we're closing down to the first of the year. Where's our backbone, Christians? Where's the spirit of Daniel? If we're going to be a force, we're going to have to raise the level of Christian living. The cancel culture right now wants to purge society not only of our history, but of our faith. And you've read about the Bible burnings in Portland and Seattle. And they're not here, thank God. And I pray they never will come. But there is a revolutionary spirit in America and it opposes who we are and what we're trying to do right now. So this is a call to you as Christians. This is a call that we've got to have revival or we're going to have ruin. it's it's either repentance or it's revolution some little boys were spending the night together on the farm and a little boy whose daddy owned the farm had a hay wagon full of hay and was up on the top of a little hill and the boys were playing on the hay wagon. They were having a great time. It was almost dark. And one of them said to the other, you know, it sure would be fun if we could ride this wagon down the hill. And the other one said, well, I know where the brake is. And so he loosened the brake, and the wagon started rolling down the hill. Well, what they hadn't calculated on, there was a big briar patch at the bottom of the hill. And, you know, blackberries or something like that, big old stems sticking out there, thorns growing off of them. And, and they were coming up on it real fast, and the wagon is picking up speed. A few of them saw what was about to happen, and a couple of them jumped off the wagon. And then the wagon hit the briar patch. and man it was tearing the skin off their face and scratching them all up, and they were screaming and hollering. Finally, the wagon came to a stop. And one of them looked at the other one and said, You sure can't find out who wants to ride the wagon when you hit the briar patch. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to find out who wants to ride the wagon. Because I got a feeling there's a briar patch in our future. And I challenge you today to stand true to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have decided to follow Jesus. And I won't turn back. Our heads are bowed.